Greetings from Longtime No See the Podcast. Every week we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! What would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on. A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my god, Jack almost fell off his chair. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So you want to be a rock and roll star? No? Well, how about a podcast star? Well, as it turns out, there's a new all-in-one platform just for you. It's called Anchor, and it's the easiest way to make a podcast. And check this out. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And then Anchor will distribute the podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify and Apple Podcast and, you know, everywhere else in, uh, in podcast land. And what's even better, you can actually make money from your podcast. Go figure. Uh, no minimum listenership on that. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So go ahead. Download the free Anchor app right now or go to anchor.fm to get started. So what are you waiting for? Podcast stardom is within your reach. The Star Wars universe is constantly expanding. But how the heck are you going to keep tabs on it without a holocron? And where in the rim can I score the juiciest news and rumors? Ah, you seek State of the Empire, Consequence of Sound's Star Wars Speculation Podcast, where we look for news in Alderaan places. We dig into the Sarlacc pit of the internet for the hottest intel in the galaxy far, far away. Make Indiana Jones inquiries and keep watch for the latest on Willow. Find us on consequenceofsound.net or wherever you procure fine podcasts. It's the show you're looking for. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to another edition of Kyle Meredith with. It's an audio interview series presented by WFPK Independent Louisville at WFPK.org. Consequence of Sound and the Consequence Podcast Network. Uh, wherever you're listening from today, take a second to hit the subscribe button before we get started. Whether you're listening on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts from, we put out several interviews every single week. That way you can keep up. I'm Kyle Meredith. It's a special episode today. We're going to head back to 1993 and talk to three different artists who released albums that year. Concrete Blonde, their record Mexican Moon, Letters to Cleo's Aurora Gorealis, and Matthew Sweet's Altered Beast. I'm going to start with Concrete Blonde's Jonette Napolitano. Again, it's the 25th anniversary of Mexican Moon, an album that at the time was their final album. We'll talk about the rough patches that surrounded both sides of that record, but as well as the magic that went into making it. There's also some conversation on Latino arts and brand new music. In fact, the day I called Johnette, she had just released a brand new single. It's Kyle Meredith with Johnette Napolitano of Concrete Blonde. Oh, hi there. It's Johnette. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm good, thank you. What we're talking about here is uh, is Mexican Moon, the fifth album from Concrete Blonde, mm-hmm. celebrating 25 years, mm-hmm. officially October 19th. 
Um, is it really? one? Okay, yeah, cool. is, it, is it one that you've thought about at all, listened to it all lately by chance? Oh, n- no, I have not in a very long time. No, no, I haven't. But uh, it doesn't mean that I don't know the songs. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. You know, I don't I don't sit around listening to myself, you know what I mean? Right. I, I'm, I'm working on new stuff. As a matter of fact, today, a new single is called Riding the Moon. You can find it on YouTube and Apple Music and all that. It's coming out in New Zealand on New Zealand radio today. And today's my brother's birthday, so uh, that's very cool because uh, he would would have been, I think, fifty eight. So it's it's all it's all good. It's fall. It's the equinox. My birthday was the other day. This is very cool. So it's a good vibe. I'm yeah. in a good mood. Wow. No. You. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. How that all lined up, and I didn't know about the new single yet. So that's even more exciting right now. That's great. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's. it's I'm just online with the radio people it's just going out and it's going out to the npr as well so it's really cool it's a collaboration um the song is great uh, uh, uh riding the moon it's, it's just brilliant there's a couple of really great people on it ben woods who's an amazing flamenco player and fuses flamenco and metal he's one of the only people besides me that think that's a great idea <laughs> and uh and jesus matoya who's one of the premier gypsy born flamenco singers is great and it was animated by that's how it all came about i got called to do a voiceover for an animated thing from a, a new zealand anim, uh, animator graphic artist and he was so good that i had to have him do something for me and so it's taken a couple of years but he's done you know we collaborate that's what's so cool about the internet is what you can do artistically you know and not have to be there i mean we're collaborating with new zealand from the desert you know on a mountain it's just crazy and it's awesome and so um, that's done and it's beautiful and that's on youtube you can see that and it's just oh my god it's it's just so cool so we're entering that in film festivals in south by southwest and berlin and and it's so it's very very it's very cool, man. I'm I'm really I'm loving all this all the things you can do on your own now that you didn't need to have meetings with twelve people right. in five different departments back in the day. You know what I mean? You can make a great video, and I'm I'm working on another one for Halloween. So it's it's just really it's fun. It's like you know what I mean? Weed's legal, and you can make a little <laughs> animation. I mean, and call it a job. Are you kidding? <laughs> What a time to be alive, right? Absolutely. <laughs> well, it may, I don't. I don't know. I get a check for making it to you know to the old age, so they reward you with a little money, and I'm just like, this is this is awesome. It's not bad. <laughs> so, so are these just little yeah. one-offs right now? Is that what this is, or does this lead to like you know the complete collection album, whatever you want to call that, or is it this just? It is exactly leading to an album. There's the plan that I started my own little company about uh, well three years ago. So. The, the original plan was to slow build and uh, a quality, you know, visual, visual is very important, you know, so it was all about having a great piece and a great video at least once a year. Um, and, and I've done that and this year will even be two. So that's really cool. So when you go to see to John Napolitano on YouTube, there's three videos there. And it's for one a year. And now we're picking up a little bit of steam, you know, because one of the things I don't need to do either is flog myself. You know what I mean? And I'm quite a manic person, you know, by nature and run on nervous energy. And so I really, as a matter of fact, I was just in the studio in L.A. on my birthday with Gabriel, uh, who's been my drummer now for quite a few years. He's a Virgo, too. So we did some stuff in there and I drove home and I, my ass was kicked. I was in bed for two days and that was, and I'm like, God, I, I lived for years like that, like pedal to the metal, stay in the studio. 
I mean, 12 hours at a time and then, you know, get some coffee and go, you know, get on the, do whatever. It's just the spirit is willing. But the fact is, you know, I, it's more, it's important to take care of yourself at this point in time. And I want to keep doing it. It's just a different pace and a different way. You know what I mean? So it's, 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 so it's cool. It's all good. Well, first off, and I didn't get to slip that in there, but happy birthday! Uh, you're we, we thank you. We're right on the line split because I'm a Libra. Mine happens this Sunday, so it's uh it's close, but oh, all right, yeah, okay, yeah. My dad's is on the 14th, and he would have. He's not. He's around, believe me, but you just can't see him. And so he's he's the Libra. So it, there's definitely a lot of. And I'm on the cusp, so I'm just on the Virgo Libra cusp, and so there's a lot of that energy going on. The cusp of beauty is what it is, and Libras are very beautiful. Venus is your ruling planet which is the beauty planet so it's a beautiful world for you (laughs) you've already made me feel great about just everything at the moment so that's (laughs) oh good well that's good my work is done here (laughs) good i'll I'll obviously be looking forward to this uh this new music that's got me really excited but but if you don't mind heading down the uh the time portal right now 25 years to mexico this to mm-hmm. me, is an amazing record. It's an outstanding record. It's still a masterpiece of an album. There are a lot of fans who called this the best Concrete Blonde album, but at the time Including it came me, out, yeah. yeah, at the time it came out, mm-hmm. it got sort of lost in everything, didn't it? It did, and it did because there was enormous upheaval going on in the record industry at the time. And because I'm the typhoid Mary of the music business, that was the second label, I think, that it had gone under, or the first of two or three that just, they just fell like dominoes for a period of time there. And one day I was in a meeting in Capitol in the, in the, the iconic tower in Hollywood, and we'd signed a capital and one one minute I'm in there with eleven people having a meeting about a video and the next minute and next day they were all fired. Mm-hmm. I was literally running around the place leaving notes in people's desks and shit because it was like it was totally empty, there was nobody there. And so it was and, and it, to be fair to the label, you know, the personnel changes are never a good thing in any company that you work for and heads roll and all that sort of stuff. So it was really a, a, a bad timing. And the label had come to me and said, you know, can you wait six months and we till we get reestablished to put this out? And I didn't wait six months. And maybe I should have, maybe I wouldn't have. I subconsciously knew I wanted, we weren't getting along at the time at all. Jim and I were not getting along at the time. And it was actually a very, um, the thing I remember most about it, unfortunately, is that Paul Thompson, we were in the middle of a, uh, actually the Roxy Music track, uh, End of the Line. And we were at the studio in Kawanga, a very funky old place. And I wish I could remember the name of it, but I can't. It probably says on the record if somebody looks it up. But um, uh, old, old place in the 70s, like really a wacky old situation and um, up my alley. I mean, and we'd just done the drums and we literally had glasses in the air having a drink because it just came out so great. And uh, Paul got a call that his mother was hospitalized and she's all the way up in, you know, north north of England in Newcastle so that to get there he would have to fly to London and he would have to change planes and get up to Newcastle and so it was really a bad vibe because obviously it was a long way away and she was in pretty bad shape and so it's, it went from from euphoria one minute to oh no you know it, it's really horrible it was really really sad but we knew we'd done something great you know I mean it was a really and I I agree I think it's a really layered record I think it's, it's it was it was a really interesting time the vibes were really really 
good, you know. I mean, they were, aside from the bad vibes, they were, they were, they were good vibes. <laughs> right. <laughs> for, for, uh, yeah, I'm putting things so so well, but uh, but but there were great vibes around the music. You know, we were really happy to sign to Capitol because that's legendary stuff. And I remember when we signed to Capitol and I sent my grandfather, they just put out this Frank Sinatra record with all the duets on it and everything. And I got the swag, I got the shirt, I got the record and put it into a boom box that I bought and packed the whole thing ready to go. So that all my grandpa had to do was put on the shirt, plug in the boom box and he could have his Sinatra because we were on the same label as Sinatra. And that was a very big deal. Right. So there was a lot of energy surrounding it, but the new, um, president whose work I tremendously respect um, also, but he had his pet stuff that he wanted to push. And that's what happens in the record business. You know, when your A&R guy got fired, you were fucked uh, because basically, um, basically, uh, you know, your, your guy, your point man was gone, you know? And, and so you were really in the position of having to sell yourself to a new regime and chances are the new regime are there because they have their stuff that they want to do. They want to be creatively satisfied. And that's why they're in the music business in the first place, ideally, or once upon a time, it was that way. So uh, I think it's, I think it's still this way, still that way, you know? So people, it's the format has changed, but people are still there. They've gone on to do other things in different ways and blogs and what have you. And so, you know, uh, it's it, it it just morphed, you know what I mean? And if you weren't prepared for it, if you're foolish enough, and in any industry, if you're not prepared for it, you know, and don't don't keep your head up, you know, you're going to get lost. And But specifically with that record, you know, we knew. I was able, because we were on Capitol, because we had the budget and everything, you know, it was a wonderful thing to have a budget because then you could, I could pull my friends in, you know. Andy Preboy came in to play piano, you know. I could, I could co-write with people and... You know, it was just, a, and you know, the studio was great, and we did spend 12 and 15 hours. To me, that's why at my birthday, where do I want to be? I want to be in a studio, you know, with an engineer who's on his toes and just, you know, let my, you know, get manic. And that was the way every record I've ever made, you know. And you just, it's just not a sustainable way of life at a certain age. But, but I do enjoy being that caught up in the process and just the, the, the you know, I did a play a solo. Gabriel was there and I did a solo the other night with a volume pedal. It was so beautiful. It was at the end of it, the take, it was just like Gabriel and I just looked up at each other. I'm like, I don't even know where that came from, dude. Because <laughs> Gabriel, he's pretty cosmic. He's pretty, you know, he's pretty ghosty. <laughs> he's seen things, he's seen things other people may not believe too. So, you know, but it was, it's, it's just the, when the magic happens, there's nothing in the world that good, nothing. And it was definitely on, because um, in a studio that old, you know, also in LA and on Coenga where it was, and it just, you know, I tap into all that energy because it's right there. You know, I've heard Keith Richards say the same thing. You know, the song is there. You just got to grab it. And so it involves really, really tuning in and really listening the same way Nikola Tesla did or Joe Meek did or, you know, it's just a matter. It's it's very old, borderline. Uh, you know, not even borderline. It's just it's just physics. You know, the, there's stuff to hear. That's why dogs can hear things you can't. So, <laughs> so it's it's and the magic was there. It was all really really there. It was intense, and that's why like when the vibes get so intense like that, you know, things crack and things all happen. You know, and I I thought that it, it got so intense that it kind of like just the tension broke with Paul's mom. You know, getting that call from our manager saying he goes, I've already got, I've already booked him, I've already got him on a plane, and you know. So that was a real drop from the sky after being so high from what we had done. But it was intense. It was, we we were definitely, it wasn't about 
staying on the planet in the studio, and it still isn't. It's, the, it's Chris Tangerides who produced Bloodletting and, and also Walking in London. It was a very dear friend and uh, just passed away last year. Uh, the, the sanctity of the studio was the all-important thing. Leave the world outside and come in to where you're supposed to be channeling magic. That's your job. Yeah. And so um, that's what we were doing. Nothing less. You know, you mentioned, you know, walking in London and, and you also mentioned being manic. And I thought that's the right word because these records were just basically a little over a year apart from each other, which in the yeah. 90s, because of the way labels were still doing marketing, was more than lightning fast to do two records like that. Like that's that's really impressive that this record is still beyond as strong as it is, you know, with Mexican Moon. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I, I was very big on, well, I hear what I hear and I can't really change it much. So, and and I believe in timelessness of art. I was just thinking about that yesterday because I've had a discussion about a, a scenes, who comes out of a scene. And a great art should be so universal that you don't even know where the person's from. You don't look at a painting and go, oh, he was Dutch or he was this or he was that, unless you know what you're looking at. But if you don't, obviously, then you just just look at a painting and you go, I love this painting. And you don't know whether whether you got it in a thrift store, whether it was out of the Boston scene or the LA scene or whatever. You know that never, that always bored me because we had we saw we had much bigger a much bigger picture than that. Well, there's so many great moments on this that I want to pull up. Uh, first off, Rain is probably one of my my favorite moments on this, and I know that was an older song, kind of put back on That's this right. one. I, I don't know that I've ever heard the original version, so I don't have the comparison there. But but what an amazing you know moments in this record that that is that that melody is so strong and how it's somewhat circular the song you know it kind of goes in that round i guess thank you yeah well um if you haven't heard the original it's just a little bit more it's a little more innocent it has a really charming um more of a velvet underground sort of effect which is think i think i remember what even um jim's brother said at the time we recorded it the original after working at gold star studios which is a legendary studio that i worked at for for a couple of years for a while and uh, Phil Spector recorded all his hits there and uh, oh my god Glenn Campbell and uh, it, it was it's, it was just a legendary place and um, and I got a weekend I think or a 12 hour something finally in the studio after working there a couple of years they were going to throw me a bone and let me have some free time and so uh, and so we went in and recorded our first EP which was called Dream 6 that's what we were called at the mm-hmm. time Dreamers and then we changed it to Dream 6 or 6 songs and that was a really that was a standout song, and um, it, it had a very a, a more lo-fi quality to it because it never got mixed. We never had time to mix one side of the record, so one side was mixed, the other side wasn't. It was still good, um, better in my opinion. I thought it was just really good. The energy was really really good because it was fast, and uh, and you, you know you'd have all your life to write songs when you go into the studio for the first time. So there was there was some good stuff there. The deal that I had with, you know, like I said, we weren't really getting along during Mexican Moon. And this, I was determined that this was the last Concrete Blonde record ever. And that's why Paul was on it and Harry. I brought Harry back to be on it for a couple of songs because I wanted it to wrap up the band. And so I thought it would be a really interesting thing to go back and re-record the first song, you know, just as an homage to ourselves. And uh, and it's more polished and it's a little more confident and a little more adult sounding probably and you know not much different really I don't think but I haven't listened to it either so that's an intru- I completely forgot about that so I'd have, now I'll probably wonder what the differences are myself. <laughs> <laughs> There's also an interesting thread. I, I, I it might be coincidence. You might have been trying to go for it, but when you look at 
a trio of songs, uh, Jonestown, I Call Love, and Jesus Forgive Me. I mean, I don't know if religious undertones is the, the right way, but there is something in that. Beyond having just the word Jesus in the, uh, in the title, you know, it seemed like there was maybe something happening there. I don't know. Do, do you feel that? Always, yeah, always, definitely. Spirituality is a really important part of my life, and uh, and it definitely is all connected very, very much. Jonestown, the thing about Jonestown was very much like w- w- the statement that Sid Barrett was making in The Wall, you know, when he looks out and sees all the people turning into hammers and it turns into a Nazi rally. And it's a fine line between a cult of personality and what are you looking up here to me for? You know, you know, I'm in a rock band and I'm from Hollywood and all of a sudden now I'm, you know, in Belgium, you know, answer, you know, being asked questions about third world countries and shit. And I don't know. And so I'm like, what are they, what do you expect me to be? I'm just, you know, I'm writing songs here and I'm just a street rat, but that's a good thing because I, I really, you know, I study like a mad person. I'm kind of inclined to do that anyway. I've been a bookworm all my life, but that was really freaky to me is that people project you're basically just a screen for people. That's what art is, basically. It's, if beauty is in the eye of the beholder, then so is ugly, and so is everything. So you can throw, you know, show three people the same painting, and they'll all get three different meanings out of it. That's what a Rorschach test is. So art's the same way, and a person's the same way. You know, you're, some people look up to Donald Trump and think he's the guy you all want to be, you know, and some guys look up and see the devil. So you know what I mean? It's kind of like you're, I, 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 re, I really realized that I was kind of at the, that it kind of had nothing to do with me. Do you know what I mean? And I kind of like, that was an education, basically. You know, it was kind of like a, a, dis, a disassociation. And then you realize, well, I'm just, you know, I could be anybody, basically, you know, up here. And, and, um, and it's, it's a, an archetype. And that's what archetypes are. So uh, basically, you know, if some, one person sees one thing, hears one thing. And one person sees and hears another thing. You know what I mean? So that's just that's always been a very odd quirk in in humans. You know what I mean? It's like somebody listens to their songs and they're convinced that you're writing them to them. You know what I mean? And where it, it gets it gets weird. And so that's what was Jonestown was. And, and here's an interesting thing. So you hear uh, you hear Jim Jones actually. That's actually Jim Jones in the beginning mm-hmm. of that track. And it's a recording of him passing out the Kool Aid which is one of the goddamn creepiest right. things you could ever right. see or hear. Have you, have you ever seen that documentary? Yeah, anything? yeah, Where yeah, these... I've watched, yeah. Fuck, dude, that's hardcore. That's like, what the hell, man? And so, uh, and anyway, so that's, I found it in Paris, I think, a, the, uh, an LP, a 12-inch of the recording of the whole thing going down. It had been recorded by one of the cult members, and it was on vinyl, uh, and I found it in this record store, and so I got it, and I had to use it. I think that might have kicked off the writing of the whole song anyway, that galvanized the whole concept. And so, um, and who owned the recording was Genesis Peorich of Throbbing Gristle, and who um, I don't know if he'd been in the cult or what, but I called I called him up, and um, and he was totally cool. He's he, Throbbing Gristle. If you don't know Throbbing Gristle, they they like Nine Inch Nails would not be around right. if there was no Throbbing Gristle, and they were like late seventies, I think, or like full on extremely electronic, uh, experimental, industrial, like really spawned 
a lot of shit, uh, Genesis P. Orridge. And so um, talked to Genesis for a while, and he was really happy to be, you know, even contacted and paid him a couple hundred bucks. And so ended up using it. And after I after I used used it, I had I got rid of the record immediately. <laughs> I wanted the house. Uh, it was so <laughs> it was so bad. That, you know, we're in the studio laying it down, and just it made you just so fucking uncomfortable. You know what I mean? And and so uh, so I, I gave it to a collector uh, here in the state someplace. I'm like, you can have it, man, because I just don't even want it. The house is so evil, <laughs> so evil, so evil. But the video to that is also really great, and that was the. Um, when I wanted to, I wanted us all to look normal until black lights and then turn into skeletons. And so it took a while. The video, that was, the video is, is that, is us doing that. And then developing it for the stage was very, <laughs> a real trip. And, and so we had to develop this makeup that, and get a black light. It was all kind of, it was all, it was, it was great. It was, it was really cool. Once again, when you have money, you can do shit. And so we had to get a black light and we'd, we'd get on stage and we'd look perfectly normal. And then when the black light would hit, we'd all turn into skeletons on stage and people were crazy. And it was all very fun until one night on that tour, we, um, we went out, which I rarely do after a show, but went out afterwards and we'd all taken showers and we went out to this club. I forget where we were in New Orleans or something and went out afterwards and we walk in the club and the club has a black light and that shit still was all over us. <laughs> Even after we showered and bathed, we all look at each other and go, oh, no way, dude. <laughs> <laughs> After that, we would go, uh, we would pull out whoever the first two or three people were in line for the show the next night, like who, who like showed up at like noon, like the hardcore fans, and put the makeup on them and then have <laughs> them come in and, and, and dance around because that's just the kind of assholes we are. Yeah, you talk <laughs> about that imagery. Um, I read that you had opened up The Laughing Nun uh, around that, uh, that time, too, with, uh, with the, the specialization of Mexican art and everything. It, it seemed like that all fit together. The lucky nun, yes. Lucky nun. Anybody, yeah. uh, and thanks, but thanks for bringing that up because that was really a cool thing for that neighborhood at the time. It was really, really a good move. It was really very cool. And anybody from LA is influenced by, you know, Day of the Dead, mm-hmm. Latino art, Chicano art. That's just it used to be Mexico. That's that's just the way it is. So if you see anything like you know Jane's Addiction or X, us, you know, it's it's just part of the of the of the fiber of, of, of LA very much so. And, and I stopped doing it um, because I, it, it got to the point where people would, you know, I like to paint and I've done gallery shows and stuff and people were requesting a lot of that from me. And I stopped doing it because I felt at a certain point it was appropriating culture and I would try to point um, people back. And, and I can say that I am proud to have turned a lot of people on to Latin American art and um, Spanish colonial and Mexican folk art. And I just love all that stuff. I always have. And it's just, it's just, is is I mean, Los Angeles, you know, it's a Spanish word, you know? So it's just, it's just part, if you're from LA, Los Lobos, you know, even the Go-Go's, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, you just have that you just have that vibe going, man. I couldn't believe it when we refer- we first went out on tour and I couldn't find Mexican food anywhere. It was an outrage. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's another thing I've always appreciated about you all. I mean, you know, just staring at that cover arts, you know, the way a lot of us did, you know, when we got new albums, um, especially pre-internet age, you know, you just had the sound coming through the speaker and, and what you could see in front of you. And I-, I fell in love with all the stuff that you were putting out there. Thank you. I think I think a lot of uh, younger people have fallen in love with that concept all over again. You know, I so, hope so I mean, people are really digging vinyl. You know, Posh Boy, who's an old friend of mine, who was a, a punk pioneer, 
along with Brett from Epitaph, you know, back in the street days. And he was first one to put out Black Flag and Henry Rollins and all that, you know, all that lot, Circle Jerks and everything. And uh, he just reissued an old hardcore record that I put out by a band in, in Long Beach. And so it's and so once again, no matter what the genre, if you put that, you put that record on now, it sounds like a punk band right now. It just sounds like, you know. And and that's just really cool. I've always been attracted to that. No matter what genre it is, the timelessness is what matters, you know. So that transcends. It's just like the way I'm turned on to um, everything about 1922, about the 20s, just absolutely resonates with me, whether it's a past life thing or what. But I just you just look at some of those things and go, wow, that's like, you know, timeless, timelessness. That's what it's all about. Time doesn't exist anyway. It's a man-made concept. So that's why, you know, you hear a song. You're like, where have I heard that before? It could right. have been in another lifetime. You know, These waves go out to space. They bounce back. They bounce around. They come back when uh, they're meant to. It's just, it's all, it's all one wonderful thing. <laughs> Well, John, I really appreciate you doing this. I well, good. Yeah, so appreciate you talking to me about this. And, and hopefully we sure. can do this again when more of the new music is out. We can talk about and concentrate on that. I'd love to. Hit me up when you check it out. All right. I definitely will. And, uh, and again, you know, Thank for you. what it's worth, congratulations on 25 years on a really amazing album with this Mexican moon. Thank you very, very much. I, I, I wasn't looking at the calendar, but I'm extremely proud of it as well. And I'm, I'm, I'm especially flattered that you say even after 25 years, it sounds as good as it did the first time. That's an accomplishment. Yeah. Well, from Thank Mexican you. moon to riding the moon, it's a, it's a nice uh, little strand right there. So. Yeah. I thought of moon fetish. If you live in the desert, you would too. Thank you very much. And Thank have you. a good day, honey. You too. We'll talk okay. to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh-huh. And my thanks to Johnette right there. Concrete Blondes, again, the 25th anniversary of Mexican Moon and her new single, Riding the Moon. Now for the second interview for this episode, Kay Hanley of Letters to Cleo. Again, heading back to 1993 for the 25th anniversary of their debut album, Aurora Gorealis. In fact, we'll also touch on 1998's sister compilation, her work with Doc McStuffins, talk about Josie and the Pussycats, as well as new music when we might expect that from the band. But first, Kay has been an integral part of the Music Modernization Act. That's where we'll start. Kyle Meredith with Kay Hanley of Letters to Cleo. Hey, Kyle. I wanted to, I, I know we, you know, I'm going to jump in the time machine here in a bit. And I know we got some stuff to talk about in the past, but there was some stuff I thought we'd start out with more in the present because I, I've been seeing you tweet a lot about the Music Modernization Act. Uh, sure. Which looks like something you're really passionate about, thankfully. Uh, I know a lot of our listeners have seen that phrase and probably don't know what's up. And I, I sort of thought maybe we could start there and you could talk a little bit about what that is and, and why it is so meaningful to you. Right. Well, I am co-executive director of Songwriters of North America. That is, uh, and my part, my writing partner, Michelle Lewis, is the executive director. So we work on this together, too. It's a nonprofit advocacy organization that uh, fights to protect the value of songs in across, you know, in the digital marketplace. Because streaming, we are, songwriters are particularly uniquely screwed across streaming platforms when it comes to digital royalties. The Music Modernization Act, you know, this is like a consensus bill across that, that you know, has been agreed upon. It's kind of like a fragile truce between all of the stakeholders in the uh, in this particular economic this, this, I guess it's kind of like a, a streaming ecosystem. So the labels, the publishers, the artists, the writers, the internet service providers have all come 
to this like very fragile consensus that, you know, the ISPs came to it because they wanted to stop getting sued. The songwriters came to it because um, it migrates a mechanical right from sales to a stream. The labels came to it because, you know, everybody had like a reason to come to it, but they had to give up something to get on board the Music Modernization Act. So we went to Washington, D.C. to lobby for this, I don't know, in March, maybe. And we met with, you know, Congress people, senators. And the, the beautiful thing about this bill is that it is, I mean, there's a lot of beautiful things about this bill, but one of the most moving parts to me, has been meeting, seeing the way Republicans and Democrats have come together unanimously to agree that music is awesome and the people who write it should be protected. And, you know, this this bill passed unanimously in the House. And to see, like, Doug Collins, who is, like, one of the most conservative members of Congress, and Hakeem Jeffries from New York, who's one of the most liberal, like, standing on the floor of crying about how much music has meant to them and has changed their lives in support of this bill was something that you really don't see every day and especially in in you know our country feels really fucking divided right now and to to know that this kind of bipartisanship is still possible is really moving to me so fast forward to now a couple of stragglers have been coming in to try and like if we think of this legislation as a three-legged stool between like corporate you know the the music creating corporations, the tech corporations, and then the the music creators. Every time somebody comes in and tries to like insert their own self-dealing amendments into this bill, which CSAC did a couple of months ago, and songwriters were able to coalesce, like really come together, form an army and shoot that out of the sky. And now Sirius XM is coming in and trying to do the same thing. And we're like, fuck no, you are not. So every, so if, going to, back to the three-legged stool metaphor, every time, you know, like a CSAC comes in or, by the way, CSAC did the right thing and thank you, hats off to them for doing so. So every time someone comes in and like knocks a peg off the, off one of the stool legs, it like risks toppling the entire legislation. So we are not having it. And so this is the first meaningful piece of legislation that music creators have had in over a hundred years. Yeah. We need this bill to pass. So that's why I tweet the shit out of it constantly and yell at people who are not on board. The why do you hate music? I mean, we've seen some of these billboards. Obviously, you've you've directed yeah, at some senators and, and well, Congress people, and uh, it's just it works. Senator Wyden from Oregon, he got a couple of billboards put up saying why do you hate music, and he got on board. Thank you, Senator Wyden, for seeing the light. Yeah, it's just it, it is incredible that of all the people for the history of, of of the pop industry as we know it, it's been the songwriters, the people who actually created the product. I'll even say, you know taking the word arts and setting it aside for a second, which, yeah. you know, I don't like doing. But, but you know, in their eyes, the product, the people who actually created it are the ones who get the least. It's That's mind-blowing. Right.
doing. And it's, I know it's always sort of been like that. And so what you all are doing is, is so very important. And I thank you for, for, you know, doing that as well. Thank you. Well, thank you for talking about it. This is really, it's a really important for music creators. Well, I didn't this want that not- to get lost within the conversation here, because like I said, I, I know what you're doing is really important out there, but, but that aside, there is lots to celebrate uh, with the, you know, the work that you've made personally with the, uh, the art that you've <laughs> made through these years, because you know, I was looking at the calendar and I thought, oh, look at that. There's some uh, there's some anniversaries in the Letters to Cleo camp. Uh, the yeah. Big, the big anniversaries, Aurora Gorealis turning 25 this year. And, and if you want to count it, Sister uh, came out in 98 as well for whatever that little record <laughs> was. And it was wow. officially released. But, uh, yeah, I thought we would start with Alice, you know, being 25 years. And I don't know. I guess that's probably been on your mind a little bit uh, because what all the all the the main three albums, they had their vinyl reissues last year. And then you all played them in full, right? Yes, we did. How was that? It was it was really fun and interesting. I mean, we never there are some songs that we so we did three nights of the paradise in Boston. Each night we did an album from our catalog of three albums. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was I mean, there were some songs that we literally never played live and we had to learn those. And so that was that was interesting. Right. <laughs> and, then, and then ones that like we don't normally play. And, and it was really there were a lot of we, we gained a lot of fans kind of after the band broke up because we did that movie 10 things i hate about you and we did josie or i did josie and the pussycats and so a lot of fans discovered us through that stuff after we had already broken up and just assumed that they'd never get to see us live and some fans like their parents had brought them to shows when they were like little kids so it's just really i don't know i it, it was really it was really cool to like meet all of these people who who are just like pumping new life into into these songs and 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 uh you know just having new fans to connect with was really it was neato Alice Aurora Gory Alice hitting 25 years old if you don't mind walking back to 1993 and taking the deep dive into there and everything that was going on. So, because I know this album also, I, I guess in a way, it celebrates two birthdays, 93 and 94, because of the, the re-release. But, you know, going back and listening to it and the demos that came before that and everything, I mean, the sound became so much more muscular in a very short amount of time from yeah. those demos to, to Alice. Was that the influence of, of big rock sort of happening? And I'll even say grunge to a point. Was any of that there? I mean, Absolutely. there's anything you can attribute that to? Absolutely. I mean, we we heard Nirvana on the radio and we were like, we are doing that. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, we knew we knew that we I mean, we had already because we played live so much had already kind of like it was already becoming much more of a rock band. I mean, I'm not the the demo stuff where I'm not sure if you heard the work kind of like funky, a little tw- mm-hmm. like our earlier stuff. And we had a band called Rebecca Lula before uh letters clear very like i don't know like jangly college pop mm-hmm. kind of stuff with like a little ska thrown in there and a little funk thrown in there and and i think that when we you know between the time that we wrote the songs for aurora and started writing the songs for wholesale i mean five years had gone by and we had already i mean not five years in terms of like when they came out but five years between like writing one record and writing the next one we had already like been on the road and like slugging it out in the clubs and you can't help but like just get more 
more rocking from doing that. So I think the combination of like, you know, the bands around us, like the sounds that we were hearing, you know, like we were getting into like pavement and Sloan and, and Sonic Youth and, and, you know, all of these like cool bands from Pacific Northwest and Sub Pop and Merge. And, and you can't help but just feel like I want to connect. And that just made us feel our, our sound, sound got more like heavier and more intense yeah. and more in more intentional. And, and, you know, all that was happening in the Pacific Northwest, but, you know, not to take away from what was happening in New England, too, because it was pretty damn fertile on its own, you know, with oh, so yeah. much coming out at once. Did that, do you, do you see that that made it easier to get label attention or did it make it harder, like, for bands trying to get their own attention? I guess that's sort of a competition question. No, you know, here, here's, here's my feeling on that. If you were, like, past your teens and you're still in a band in Boston, you're not trying to become, like, a pop star or a rock star it's like yeah i mean we weren't and we you know most of our peers were just like we just wanted to headline thursday night at tt the bears you know that was like the height of what we thought was possible i mean i didn't even know that it was possible to become to like do this for a living it's just not the world that i grew up in so to me being in a band was like a really fun thing to do to blow off steam after work waiting tables um (laughs) So in Boston, there wasn't, I mean, there was probably like a healthy competition, but mostly we were just really supportive of each other. We all knew each other because we were playing on, it it was, as you mentioned, it was a pretty large and vibrant scene. And I'm still friends with, with all these, all those people that I came up with today. A lot of them are still doing music. I mean, a lot of them released albums this year, and that's what also was sort of my... Because I was, well, I had Kristen Hirsch uh, on the phone the other day, but, you know, we were we were talking about all the other ones, too, like Belly has the new record, and, of course, Dino Jr. is still out there doing their thing, and, 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 and Juliana's uh, got new records, and, you know, and the Pixies, and everybody, and it's just nonstop, and, it's, and everybody's still yeah. making the best music of their careers on top of that. It's, it's incredible. I like to think so. <laughs> Something in the water, as they say. Well, you know, we can't talk about the record, of course, without talking about Here and Now, which, I mean, I don't know, that's the life changer, right? That's where things turn off on its own. It's been told before, I'm sure, but what's what's the story on there and, and how does it happen? You know, how does that song happen afterward? Well, the first version of it was, again, funky, <laughs> which is so weird. And also, it didn't even get to the chorus until about a minute and a half in. And um, our producer, Mike Deneen, he, when we went into the pre-production for the record over at Q Division in Boston, he was just like, Okay, that part needs to happen, the fast-talking part, needs to happen, like, immediately. (laughs) And we were like, really? Do you think so? He's like, yeah. And then there was this part at the end of the song that was like this throwaway kind of melody line in the outro of the song that was like, "Eh, eh, eh," and it didn't even have any words on it or anything. And he was like, and that's a hook, and we need to make that a pre-chorus. So basically, Mike just came in and, like, helped us rearrange the song 
And that's how it ended up a hit. Uh, without Mike Deneen in the equation, that song would have gone nowhere. <laughs> and also, just a shout out to Mike, who who died a few months ago of cancer. Um, and he is just so important to the Boston music scene, so important to my, our, our career. And, uh, and we just, we loved him so much and just miss him a lot. Yeah, I didn't know about that. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. Thanks. So after the song came out, it became a hit, and we were like, well, in, in the meantime, we had like, I mean, the reason that we re-recorded it was because we got a deal with Giant Records. So like right after the record was re-released, it was like, right away, it was like on the, on the radio, on the charts, and we were like, oh, well, that's how it works. <laughs> you sign to a label, and you get a song on the radio, and it just goes from there, and then you, and we were like, cool, great. So when we put out the second record, and that didn't, you know, all of a sudden it was like, oh, no, sorry, we added Alanis Morissette, we can't add any more girls, and we were like, what? And so we didn't know that like it there's like you're not guaranteed another shot at the at the charts, you know. And so uh we had to kind of come up with contingency plans. So we just kept touring. Luckily for us, it was kind of our crazy story is that we made all three of our albums at the same label with the same A&R guy. And I just consider, you know, even though we didn't have another big hit after here and now, it was like, I had the best fucking time in my 20s. I didn't, I like, I made records and I toured with like my brothers. <laughs> it was like around the world playing mu rock music. It was like crazy. And because of the success of that song, I was able to, you know, we were able to do the things that kind of kept us in, you know, in the conversation. Like we did a lot of soundtrack stuff and, and, um, and after the band broke up, I did Josie. And I just kind of was able to keep enough doors open that like I could continue doing what I, what I do. And I'm, I still get to do it. Yeah. You know, writing songs is how I keep the lights on, how I pay for college tuition. And Very fortunate for all of those. Yeah, no, because not everybody gets that. You guys played it well. You played it very well, you know, all things considered. And, and I'll hit on one more. Uh, well, uh, actually, I'll comment on one song. Hearing Rimshack now and the epic of that, you know, probably <laughs> the heaviest uh, of maybe everything on that, I thought, you know, you do really do give. Uh, Mascus and the gang, a really good run for their money on that sound, <laughs> on that one. But, but on the flip side of that, Melly's coming over. You know, that's such a fun song. And, and I, you know, to me, it almost seems like that's potentially even the jumping off point that leads into Wholesale Meats and Fish, you know, that little song right there. Cause, sure, sure. Yeah. That's a very good observation. And it, you've got the time right, the timeline just right. Oh, really? How, that was like one of the last songs written for Aurora. And I, that was the first, the, I think maybe the only song that I wrote all by myself for that record. And that, that was right around the time that we started writing stuff for Wholesale. So that was very astute observation. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'd like to do my research. You're welcome. Got to uh, pay me for something over here. Well, heading, you know, so skipping into the other big round number of 1998, you, know, you guys do release Sister, which is, I, I don't know, it's, so it's not really an album, would you say? It, it, it's a collection. It's got the demos. It's got the covers. How, how do you see that record? I think it's the, it's the Sister tape, uh -huh. which was a tape that we put out. That was like pretty much the end of Rebecca Lula. The, like the first thing that we released as Letters to Cleo. I, think, I don't even know if many of those were Cleo songs, to be honest. Some of them are. I, 
I, I don't know. Yeah. I'm the worst. No, no it's okay. I mean, because... That it, was kind of like Greg. That was, I think that was kind of like Greg's baby. Because it, yeah, that's what I remember reading about it was, it was, you know, a lot of the earlier songs before uh, the Aurora record and everything. And then there was some covers in there. I didn't know if that was from the same thing because you also get uh, You Dirty Rat and oh, Secret Agent and Dreams. Right, 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 right. Okay, so yeah. So yeah, there, <laughs> it's, it's rarities and B-sides. Yeah. And... Oh, no, I think that the, we put out another one after that called When Did We Do That? Uh-huh. And that was B-Side. Yeah, exactly 10 years after that. That's that's when those two records happened. Sister, and then When Did We Do That? 98, 2008. Right. By chance, I'm sure. I don't know. <laughs> it, it, I, and I'm guessing, you know, when those compilations come around, like I don't know what was going on in 98 for you all. It does seem like that might have been the regrouping year with member changes and I think that was when you all left the label, you know, kind of the, the last restructure, I guess. I think so. We, I mean, we made the, the last, man, you and your timelines, you you have got me completely stumped. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Sorry. I think 90, 90, I mean, we brought in Tom because Stacey, our drummer, left to join Baruch Salt. So we made our last album go with Tom Polchi. And that was an amazing experience. Um, making that record. I think Go came out in 97 or 98. Yeah, it came out in 97. Sort and of then the, 98, uh, the we were just like touring, touring, touring. And and then uh, Michael and I had gotten married. And then in 98, I got pregnant with our first child. And then that was it. It was like I was done with being the singer of a rock band. <laughs> I wanted to... I, I very much wanted to move on. And actually, that was right around the time we did start moving on. We the whole band got hired to do an animated series for the WB channel called Generation O, which was about this eight-year-old rock star named Molly O. And it was so much fun. And it was like such a great way to, I think that was one of the sort of like bridge jobs that, that showed me, like gave me kind of a roadmap to the future. Because strangely enough, that's what I do now. I write music for cartoons all day, every day. What, what have you been, or if you could tell me, I guess, what have you been writing for? Um, I write music for Michelle and I compose all the music for uh, a series called Doc McStuffins uh-huh. on Disney Junior. We do music for Vampirina. So we do a lot of work, you know, write a lot of songs for animated shows on Disney, DreamWorks, where we just started work on uh, DC Superhero Girls, which will come out next year on Cartoon Network. So, yeah, that's my job. That's what I do. Yeah, that's that's so cool. Uh, I, I know some people, you know, that kind of have that side of things and whatnot. And, you know, I don't know. It seems like it would be really fun. It seems like it would still be very hard work. To, to kind of write yeah. in, in that section. Yeah, I mean, but it it's perfect for me. It's this is exactly what I'm supposed to be. This is what I, this is what all those years of like being in a band was leading to. To like this is exactly now, do you ever try to job for me. yeah to 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 kind of marry those two together? Do you do you take these songs out and play them live at all? No, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> no. <laughs> Just for the small screen. Yep. Yeah. But in the meantime, um, Letters to Cleo have been back out there with those shows and everything. And the uh, the 2016 reunion EP was great with Back to Nebraska. What's ne- is there is there a next step for the band? I know you have some some one off shows here and there, but 
you know, what, what comes next musically? You know, I don't really know. We're talking right now about maybe making a, a full-length album, but getting us all together to do that is, like, is really hard because we're all kind of busy with our own careers and, you know, kids and just a lot of busy stuff going on. So it's really hard to, like, to like lock down a time and say we're doing this. So the dream is that we'll we'll really focus in on some times that we can get together and put out a record next year. But if not, we'll just, you know, we'll just do our November. We're kind of like circling around November as a great time for us to play rock shows. And hopefully we'll release some new material to support those. But if we don't, then we still have a hundred songs that people want to sing along to and we love we love uh we love hosting sing-alongs no one's going to complain about that part right there i promise you nope <laughs> <laughs> okay it's been really fun talking thanks for uh thanks for geek let me geek out at least and uh, and and taking the time travel with me and again uh, a big thanks for everything you're doing out there with the music modernization act as well thank you so much kyle i really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me all right we'll see you around yes you will all right take care bye bye, <laughs> bye. My thanks to Kay Hanley of Letters to Cleo right there, 25th anniversary of Aurora Gorealis. Now for the third and final interview of this episode, Matthew Sweet. He returned this year with a record called Tomorrow's Daughter. That's a companion record to the one he put out last year called Tomorrow Forever. We'll talk about one of my favorite songs on it, Lady Frankenstein, a reissue series he has on the way. In fact, also a vinyl-only album, a new album that he's working on putting out. And then we'll head back to 1993 for the Altered Beast record, the 25th anniversary of that LP right there, as well as the song that ended up on the No Alternative compilation and his inclusion on 1998's Can't Hardly Wait soundtrack. It's Kyle Meredith with Matthew Sweet. Hey, Kyle. How's it going? I'm well. How are you, man? I'm good, thanks. So, Tomorrow's Daughter, you and I talked right before... The last record came out, and you had sort of laid it all out for us and everything that there was going to be all these leftovers, <laughs> and the and the fans were going to get these. And now we're finally seeing it. You know, the the folks that uh, that didn't uh, sign up and, and and help you out with the record, we're finally hearing these. I don't know. Is it is it right to call this set leftovers, or is it an addition? I think it's more an addition. I mean, to me, it feels more like a real album than leftovers i put the songs together at the same time i was finishing tomorrow forever because i liked how some of them coalesced and you know had wished to put all of them you know on on an album but the first you know bunch of songs kind of became what tomorrow forever was and then there was this other thing and very few people got it with the kickstarter and it was only as a download and not mastered or, in, or anything. And I probably said to you before, I really hoped it would um, get released so those songs would be out there sort of officially. And um, I'm delighted that it's come together this quickly to release it. And uh, it's gotten really good response. So I think it holds its own. Now, you said you, you kind of heard them together. Uh, is it that you hear a thread or, or is it, I don't know, maybe more the feel uh, of the record? I think it's more the feel of it. I don't know. I have been asked what are the connections emotionally, and I'm sure, you know, it's all different kind of feelings like I would always have in a bunch of my songs, you know. So it's not so much the way it relates to the other record, but that it's kind of an offspring 
of the same session. Uh, I've got some instant favorites off of here that I would love to ask about, too. Sure. Um, First off, Lady Frankenstein. Uh, You've written (laughs) about monsters uh, sort of, uh, you know, here and there in the past, and and this one follows in that great canon of your uh, your monster songs. Is there a story behind this one? Well, you know, it's funny. I was, you know, I always really liked Frankenstein, and I read the book when I was really young, like one of the first serious adult books I tried to read, you know. So it's funny with the song, the, the universal monster Frankenstein and everything, we thought of him as Frankenstein, whereas in the book um, we know Frankenstein's the, the doctor that uh, creates uh, the monster, and Frankenstein's monster just is called the monster. Mm-hmm. Um, in my song, though, um, it's more like the universal horror movie thing where Frankenstein means the monster. <laughs> I've been trying to explain that when I'm asked about it. But it, it's an imaginary thing where both he and, I mean, she's really bright of Frankenstein, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was also kind of a joke with my wife and I because we used to have these huge black and white sort of stand-up from some, must have been from some screening in in a theater for Bride of Frankenstein. So we had these big stand-ups of the two of them, and we used to put them in our windows um, of our house when we were first in Los Angeles. And so we always kind of had this joke thing, and I would call her Lady Frankenstein. But in the song, both the monster and the lady are, you know, made up of parts of other people. And, um, you know... It's kind of supposed to be funny, I guess. He's saying, you know, don't despair. You're beautiful despite her face. You know, whoever like you were made from. And, you know, I can hold you with his arms, you know, um, (laughs) other than them really necessarily being their own. And somehow it kind of uh, hits at a thing in relationships where we all have faults and it's kind of about accepting each other. I mean, it's 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 hard to write a unique love song with sort of an original idea this far into the canon of pop songs of the uh, 20th and 21st century. So to have something like this come along, uh, it, I, I, it's really applaudable. Uh, you know, the, the big big hand claps for you on that one. Oh, well, thank you. Well, it's, I didn't think about it a lot. It just kind of popped out, you know, and it was sort of amusing to me. And it was one of the songs that really had a kind of kinetic thing about it and uh, the recording of it. And so uh, I'm delighted that it's seen the light of day. Now, speaking of love songs, I'll ask about another one uh, a little bit further down the record is Ever After. First off, is that mandolin I'm hearing in, in that one? There, well, you're hearing um, actually sped up guitar, uh, probably a sped up acoustic, okay. where I'm playing along to the track and the track is going half speed, like really slow. And then when it's sped back up, the, that little part I played is super high and fast, kind of. Now, there may also be re- regular mandolins on it. I'm not sure. I know that um, Val McCallum played on it and he uh, definitely did some something acoustic on it i'd have to look back at the credits to remember exactly what but yeah that little thing it's kind of a a little bit stolen from lindsey buckingham like i think he did that where he'd record guitars at half speed and then put the tape up to full speed and they would have that you know gossamer little high and they're sort of like tightly wound you know they kind of jump out and do these little uh fast runs it's a it's a seriously cool studio trick. I, I would have never have guessed it. I mean, that's a yeah. I really I really love doing it 
I, I always wonder if it sort of annoys people or whatever, but <laughs> but, uh, cool. but I like making the sound. It's pretty cool. And you never know exactly what it's going to sound like sped up. So for me, I'll just try a bunch of different things, and then they end up being little bits that fly in and out. Now, I don't know if you kind of structured it um, thematically this way, but you know, following Ever After uh, is, is Show Me. And, and I started thinking about how that and, and a few of the following tracks all work together, and I thought, you know, how we start with the best intentions and promises. Yeah, I think, well, that's a, a great idea. I mean, I don't know if I thought about it that way um, specifically, but, you know, I always, on my records, want to get a wide range of feelings and viewpoints. The records I loved growing up, the Beatles and stuff, always have like a bunch of different kinds of songs. So there's that going on. And then there's partly just certain things feel right coming after other things or before other things. And um, that was one of the things about Tomorrow's Daughter is it really felt like I was putting together an album and it had a natural flow to it when I when I did it at the same time as the other record. Now, I, looking at some of the credits, did I read that uh, Rod Argent and Gary Lewis are on these sessions? Or are they on these? Um, Rod Argent is on Tomorrow Forever, but both his songs are on that record. Gary, let me think. I don't think Gary's on this one either, but it's everybody else. Jason Victor and John Mormon playing guitar, Val McCallum playing slide and guitars and things. There's a couple songs that Val, I think at least a song that Val plays kind of everything on. So it's the, it's the people from the record before, but just uh, not those two because they're they only worked on a couple songs each, and both those were on on Tomorrow Forever. Gotcha. Now, there are are there still more songs from this session? Because that's a lot of songs with the two records put together. There are um, one song, a song called "Lonely Summer," came out on a Canadian benefit for heart disease, and so it's seen the light of day a little bit. It's kind of cool because it's sort of a surfy song, a little bit like uh, the Searcher from uh, Tomorrow Forever. Uh, but yeah, there's another bunch of songs, and some of them I really liked, you know, and almost would have put on on uh, Tomorrow's Daughter. But I guess it's good to have a few extras, so sometime in the future we can, uh, you know, release extra things. I mean, that's happening with uh, these vinyl reissues that are coming um, through a, a label called Intervention Records, and also a Pledge Music campaign that we did with them, and. They've, they've found all kinds of old, unreleased tracks and or things that weren't on albums. And each album of Girlfriend, Altered Beast, and 100% Fun are two discs and include all this stuff that wasn't on the album. So it's always nice to have those kind of things, a few things that are, you know, hidden gems or whatever, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, not to make you that great a claim. And uh, so... I think there can be those few songs that didn't get on either of the records, and I'm sure we'll use them for something sometime. Well, I'm looking really forward to those vinyl editions uh, ever since you announced those. What can you tell us about some of those uh, those those recently found tracks? I mean, were they surprising to you? Do you remember every, all of those moments? I remember them, you know, kind of once I hear them and know about it. There's still uh, these records are in progress, so on a couple of them I haven't heard the the extra discs yet. There's uh, my manager, Russell Carter, his son, Adrian, has really been sort of curating that whole project and gone the extra mile and coming up with amazing liner notes and, you know, really digging out 
um, some of those things that I would never have just remembered off the top of my head. So I think it'll be fun for people to sort of check it out. And it's, you know, everything's remastered really nicely. And we even found a live recording from Chicago XRT at a big outdoor festival uh, that was probably in 93 or 4. And uh, at some point, we might stick that on vinyl as well. Oh, cool. It's fun making vinyl. You know, I have a whole another record that I made early last year and originally was going to have a couple of guys from Cheap, uh, Cheap Trick playing on it and then they could do it sort of in the time frame I was working on it so I went ahead and finished it with just Jason Victor and I so it's Rick Mank and me and Jason Victor and that record is called Wicked System of Things and it's only coming out on vinyl on record store day this fall which I believe is Black Friday yeah yeah, wow. yeah, so there's even more. I'm really glutting the market <laughs> with stuff this year. I'll take and, it, man. Uh, and then, you know, I'll start kind of clear slate. You know, the thing, Wicked System was a thing that, like, could have fallen between the tr- tracks and not really gotten uh, gotten out there in any timely fashion. But because there's this world of vinyl and we've been going to record stores and seeing firsthand the enthusiasm about it, um, it allows me to kind of, you know, release something without necessarily pushing it as my new album, so to speak, you know. Yeah, no, it's a, I mean, for fans, you know, you could, this couldn't be a better time, really. A, a way that a lot of the artists are treating it, both on vinyl and, you know, digital singles here and there and stuff like that. It really is a, a cool time. Yeah, because, you know, there's no hurt to making lots of new music and having something to tour around and even though we don't sell huge amounts of records we sell little amounts of records that help us you know make another one so yeah it is kind of a good time and it's been you know obviously a big uh output of stuff for me but i still you know have been uh storing new seed ideas and uh I feel like I'll feel strong making the next record. So I think it is a, a period that's good one for me. Well, I hope you don't mind jumping in the Wayback Machine for a minute while we're sort of talking about these older records because, uh, as it happens to be this year, the 25th anniversary of, of Altered Beast, which has this sort of um, comparison with Tomorrow Forever, Tomorrow's Daughter, because it had its own son of Altered Beast. Are you going to be doing anything uh, beyond? I mean, do you do like the full album shows or anything? Or have you thought about doing well, that with that we one? Did it, we did it for Girlfriend, and it lasted like a few years because everybody <laughs> wanted it. And uh, But we've never done it on another album. I'd like to. I guess I don't know. You know, people know Girlfriend so well, and, they, and the real diehard fans know Altered Beast. It would be fun to do Altered Beast, I think, but we haven't really talked about it. We focus more on a mixture of oldies. We definitely play some songs from Altered Beast. We play Devil with the Green Eyes and Ugly Truth. We'll play Time Capsule. It seems like there's something else I'm not thinking of. So we do touch on lots of Altered Beast songs in our set, and they're always fun to play. What do you remember about that? Because, you know, this was the record that followed Girlfriend. You know, you finally get your breakthrough Hits. Was there any sense of urgency as you, as you went into that one, in, into Altered Beast? I mean, for me, it was just more like Kid in a Candy Store, and I just went in and did whatever I wanted. And I really didn't take a break before making the record. Um, I went straight into it, and my wife was in 
Princeton where our stuff got packed up and we moved as I was kind of finishing the album to Los Angeles. So it was a, a, a somewhat rootless time for me. You know, it's just out there hanging out in Los Angeles and Richard Dashett was sort of teaching me all about L.A. And uh, I think that the reaction to Altered Beast felt like the ba- a basic not as good as girlfriend, you know, from a sort of like commercial standpoint. But diehard fans really liked it. I really liked it. Um, I felt it was artistic. You know, I did what I wanted to do. But it was a little bit of a, a difficult time for me, you know, once we released it and we're promoting it because I was having some of my worst sort of mental problems and that was when I stopped flying for a few years. And uh, part of that, I think, was just a reaction to how fast Girlfriend had become successful and how much just pure promo work I had to do in going out and getting around everywhere and playing. So I think of it a little bit as a time when I was felt sort of challenged. But the experience of making the record was great, and some of the people who were on it were so great. Nikki Hopkins was great on it. Greg Lease, as always. I had met, had met uh, Pete Thomas in England where we recorded the, the uh, Someone to Pull the Trigger that ended up on that album. And he had just moved to L.A., so he played on some stuff. We got Mick Fleetwood to play on a couple songs. All the rest of my guys played on it. So um, it was a real fun sort of time in the studio and just sort of a bit of a party kind of in the recording studio. It was still a time when, you know, everybody didn't have studios of their own yet, you know. You know, sort of looking back on it and... Uh, the Ugly Truth being, you know, one of the, the singles off that one. Two versions, uh, but you did put a fiddle in one of the versions at the height of alternative. Grunge was still happening yeah, big it time. Was and... kind of, <laughs> it was just because I dug, I dug the plane, and uh, uh, that was, I guess, Byron Berline, I think. I was interested in country and stuff. I was a big fan of, like, Graham Parsons. But his sort of country rock probably was the main influence in my using the fiddle, but also even before that, on Girlfriend, using pedal steel. Um, and when I met Greg Lease, I said, you know, do you know, like, the Burrito Brothers and Graham Parsons? And he's like, oh, yeah, I know them, you know. And uh, so I found someone who could kind of do that. And it was, in a way, kind of country rock, you know, at least one of the versions with mm-hmm. the fiddle. Yeah, I don't know if there was yet, if it had coalesced into that kind of uh, alt-country movement yet, but there were certainly people around that, we're headed toward that. Now, also that same year, uh, we got the new alternative compilation, which had Super Deformed, um, which has gone on to become this classic record in itself. You know, if you're a part of that, it's it's sort of a big deal these days still. I don't know if you saw that uh, that coming, you know. I mean, who would have guessed the importance uh, of really that compilation in an era that, you know, soundtracks and, and comps were huge? Yeah. Well, I remember even at the time, it was really cool how much support it got. And, you know, I knew Victoria. Um, I'd known her, and she sort of opened for some Golden Palominos shows when I was playing with them. And so it was a no-brainer to uh, offer to do something for the record. And, yeah, and for, you know, many years we also played Super Deformed. We haven't played it lately, but that would be a fun one to bring out sometime. One more. I'll bring up one more track that's sort of getting the big round number right now was Farther Down that happened on the Can't Hardly Wait soundtrack uh, uh, Can't Hardly Wait. I, I loved Can't Hardly Wait. I knew the directors pretty well, and even though I did just a tiny bit of music for it and then I had a song in it, 
I got a co-scoring credit oh, cool. on the movie because of some, you know, legality. And if you've done more than a certain number of minutes, then you they have to share the credit with you. So I always felt kind of guilty for the guy that really scored the movie. Um, but I think he scored millions of other things, so it's okay. Uh, but I, I really got to know some of the actors, Seth, and I even once had a party. And, like, I never had parties. I really don't. I'm not a very social person, and I kind of never have people over. But we had a big party with all those kids from Can't Hardly Wait, and they all came to my house and hung out and played the drums and stuff, and, and it was really fun. I still have, a, like, a big photo of them from the movie that they all signed for me. So that was a, that was a happy experience, and I liked that song. That's a great soundtrack, and you know it, it's it's a movie that's definitely stamped in the era. But uh, it's my era, and I certainly love watching it and and hearing. Well, it I it. hope it's a classic. I remember really liking the movie, and I came from liking you know loving Fast Times at Ridgemont High, or and you know the uh, movies like you know Pretty in Pink and Breakfast Club and that kind of stuff. Like all those teen movies, I really watched a lot in my sort of early twenties. So to be a part of that kind of teen movie was, uh, you know, a, a treat. No, it's certainly a classic for the teen movies of my era. I was, uh, I was at a loss again. I was trying to think of John Hughes. Oh, yeah. That's what I meant to say. <laughs> <laughs> I, I noticed, um, at least that I can tell, that I can find online uh, for easy search and surface searching, except for 2008, you released a song on a compilation of some form from 1991 all the way to 2010. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, that's something I would not know. Yeah, at least one every year except for 2008 th- that I'm aware of. So that's uh, wow. an amazing run right there. That so, is amazing. <laughs> anyway. Time flies. Yeah, I do love listening to it all, and I appreciate you taking the time to, to jump back with me and to talk about uh, Tomorrow's Daughter. I've really enjoyed listening to this one, and I'll look forward to the, uh, to the, uh, the record store day one, too, on Black Friday. I can't wait to hear that. All right. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate the support. All right, Matthew. It's good talking to you again. Same here. All right. Take care. Take care, Bye. And a big O thanks to Matthew Sweet for the call. Tomorrow's Daughter, the latest record, and the 25th anniversary of Altered Beast. And again, thanks to my other guests as well, Kay Hanley of Letters to Cleo and Johnette Napolitano from Concrete Blonde. If you haven't already, please do hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening from right now, whether it's on Spotify, on YouTube, iTunes, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts from. After that, Head over to WFPK.org. That's where I do a show every Monday through Thursday from noon to 3 Eastern. We can also find some uh, bonus episodes of this series. You can find me on Twitter at Kyle Meredith, Facebook slash Kyle Meredith. That's it for this episode. I'm Kyle Meredith. I'll see you next time. Consequence Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.